You're listening to Travaux, episode one, part one. We're your hosts, Veronica Bognot, Kayleen Kosla, and Tim Patterson. With the election looming, this is an especially crucial time to reflect on the state of international relations and the integrity, stability, and definition of democracy as they've evolved over the past four years. We spoke with two experts to better understand the domestic and international forces that are at play in the 2020 U.S. election and what might come of the forthcoming administration. Professor Shemen Keitner, a professor at UC Hastings School of Law, is a leading international legal scholar who previously served as the 27th Counselor on International Law in the U.S. Department of State. Professor Bertrand Ross, Chancellor's Professor of Law at UC Berkeley, teaches constitutional law, election law, and legislation. Kayleen, can you start us off by telling us how Professor Keitner conceives of the role of the U.S. in foreign relations during and as a result of the Trump administration? I began my conversation with Professor Keitner by asking her to contextualize how we got here and explaining where the U.S. currently stands on the global stage. We discussed a few key points, beginning with how President Trump has managed alliances with foreign actors, followed by a discussion of what message the re-election of President Trump might send to the world. Listen in on part of our interview here. It's no surprise President Trump has, you know, taken a few unusual steps in befriending previously hostile leaders like Vladimir Putin, Kim Jong-un, and at the same time, he severed ties with many of the U.S.'s previous allies like Emmanuel Macron and Justin Trudeau. How do you see these relationships built or bridges burnt impacting America's next four years, regardless of who's elected this November? Well, I think the president, even at last night's debate, was pretty clear that he uh, is proud of himself for, as you say, uh, establishing relationships with dictators. And, you know, the term friendship is one that is bandied about, but friendship implies reciprocity. And there's no doubt whatsoever here uh, that anyone who is uh, running a country as an autocracy, an authoritarian state, is not interested in friendship and is not interested in reciprocity. So I think even the characterization of these relationships is somehow, um, as the president has sought to characterize them as somehow beneficial to the United States, can be quite misleading. What is clear uh, is that simply being a bully on the world stage uh, is not going to be effective in containing our adversaries. The approach that Donald Trump has taken to all of these challenges uh, has been extremely ad hoc, uh, quite impulsive. And with respect to Russia in particular, I think uh, has justifiably raised uh, a great deal of concern given the president's acknowledged ties uh, to Vladimir Putin, his acknowledged desire uh, to build a Trump Tower in Moscow, just by way of example, and his remarkably um, muted rhetoric about Russian election interference, with which even though we have uh, placed sanctions uh, on Russia and some folks in the intelligence and law enforcement communities have certainly uh, conveyed uh, U.S. condemnation of Russian activities most recently uh, in a very extensive indictment uh, of, of a number of Russian hackers. I think the the bottom line is that the United States over the last four years has not been handling uh, any of our adversarial relationships in a 
thoughtful and consistent way, uh, let alone, as you mentioned, nurturing and supporting those alliances that are going to be critical to us as we look towards uh, the international order uh, post-pandemic. I pressed her a little further to elaborate on this point of nurturing alliances, and I particularly asked her how we as a country might be able to move forward during the coming years, regardless of who we elect as president. Here's what she had to say. The the points that you raise are really important uh, in the following ways. Number one, the United States needs to reestablish the trust of countries with whom we have uh, these sort of long-term, mutually supportive relationships, right? Uh, And again, you know, I don't kid myself. Every country is rightfully uh, pursues its own self-interest in international relations, although many countries recognize uh, that, as I said before, we all share one planet. And so uh, a country's self-interest also has to factor in uh, the long-term global effects of its domestic and international policies. That said, um, you know, trust is something that can be regained in the short term. So I, I do think, and this was said by a lot of foreign counterparts when Donald Trump was elected, they sort of said, okay, you know, we're going to give the U.S. a pass this time if they want to elect uh, a more, um, and I was going to use the term isolationist, but again, that there's not a consistent isolationist theme uh, in, in President Trump's foreign policy. So if we're going to uh, enact, uh, elect a more, uh, shall we say, populist, uh, authoritarian inclined, um, non-traditionalist uh, as as our leader, you know, we'll give them a pass one one time, and then you know, in the 2020 election, let's see what happens. And I think if the if the United States population re-elects Donald Trump, then foreign counterparts will certainly uh, not make plans that are uh, contingent on U.S. assistance or cooperation or even predictability. Uh, I think if Joe Biden is elected, they will be more willing to re-engage. However, I think that, and many, many have made this observation, the very fact that we have now had a four-year Trump presidency in which not only the president, but of course, uh, Senate uh, senators who comprise the majority of the Senate uh, and are in charge of things like the Senate Judiciary Committee, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, uh, have by and large fully supported this president's policies. So this is not about one person. Uh, I think that there, even if Joe Biden is elected, foreign counterparts will be much more cautious about depending on the United States. I was then really curious to know what Professor Keitner thought about the effects of President Trump's removal of the U.S. from various international agreements and treaties, such as the Paris Climate Accords, his intended removal from the World Health Organization, his recent sanctions on the International Criminal Court, so on and so forth. So, I pose the broad question of what can we expect the implications of this America First policy to look like for U.S. leadership going forward? Here's what she had to say. Well, I do think America First is a is a misnomer because honestly, uh, the policies that have been pursued in the name of America First uh, have been very detrimental uh, to the country, uh, both in terms of our international standing, our ability to exercise what we call you know, soft power or influence, and also as we look around with over two hundred thousand people dead and an economy on life support, uh, because as many 
others have pointed out, the stock market is not the economy. And so even though we're starting to see some reverberations in the stock market, you only need to look around the country to see that it's going to take us a long time to recover from the devastation of this pandemic. Uh, the idea that uh, an America first policy, if by that we mean uh, retrenchment and withdrawal, as you said, from various international commitments, I think, you know, does have a lasting negative impact. Uh, all of these organizations are ones that we can indeed rejoin, uh, but we will do so in a weakened position. And in particular, uh, as many have observed, uh, China, unlike Russia, actually does have a quite strong uh, domestic economy. And uh, certainly a great deal of international influence, largely purchased through economic incentives rather than sort of ideological leadership. But nonetheless, uh, it has to a large extent, and you know, one needs more nuance, but, but for our purposes, I think it's fair to say, to a large extent stepped into the vacuum that the United States has created in these various organizations. And so it's not as if uh, we can go back to these different bodies uh, and find them exactly the way we left them. I think that there's going to be, uh, perhaps even as you alluded to earlier, a generational challenge uh, of you know rebuilding uh, the the values based foreign policy that again I think cynics uh, have have rightfully pointed to has not always been. Uh, totally consistent, but I think the intention has always been, or has historically been, uh, to to lead with values of freedom and dignity and equality, and that is something that will take time to restore. Uh, maybe one other point there, and, and there's been some some recent really good literature on this, including in the Atlantic and, and other outlets. Uh, the State Department needs to be rebuilt. And again, you know, I was in the State Department in 2016 and 2017. Uh, it certainly has had its fair share of bureaucratic um, intransigency and excessive complexity. And so uh, I certainly wouldn't put the need for State Department reform solely at the feet of the Trump administration. However, we have seen uh, a well-documented systematic gutting of the State Department, of the career bureaucracy throughout the federal government, uh, and in fact, most recently, an executive order uh, that would basically transform much of the career bureaucracy into uh, at-will employees, which will make them much more susceptible uh, to firing for political and ideological reasons. So a really a wholesale recasting of the infrastructure of the federal government, and the reason I mention that in this context is, of course, that's how we conduct our foreign policy. That's how we formulate it. That's how we identify national security threats and develop the best means of responding to them. And so, you know, we can we can talk about this uh, idea of, of restoring credibility to American foreign policy and, and restoring our standing on the world stage. But one person can't do that, you know, as experienced as Joe Biden is and as much respect as I think he uh, on an individual level commands, he will need uh, to, to restore that infrastructure in order to be able to get any of this done. Well, thank you, Professor Keidner. It certainly is a bit overwhelming in hindsight to look at the changes in the U.S. diplomacy. Um, but I want to touch on what you just mentioned at the very end of that response and 
what a Biden foreign policy would look like. In particular, how can we expect a Biden foreign policy to differ from that of an Obama foreign policy or other leaders in the Democratic Party? That's something that certainly uh, has been written about a lot. So there's some really interesting articles that have been coming out, Syriatum, and for example, in the Foreign Affairs magazine um, by both uh, Trump officials and you know, presumed or interested uh, potential Biden officials to try to define that difference. Because I do think there's some wariness uh, among, you know, again, on a bipartisan or nonpartisan basis about the uh, tendency of the United States under both Democratic and Republican presidents to overcommit abroad. So I think that I think that there is an impulse and there is a desire uh, not to overcommit the United States. I think that President Trump, to a certain extent, was elected on this idea that uh, other countries are taking advantage of the United States. And again, although I absolutely disavow uh, that notion, I do think it is true that uh, you know the United States was pivotal in rebuilding uh, Western Europe after uh, World War II. We were pivotal in uh, hastening the end of the Soviet regime and the fall of communism uh, in in Eastern Europe and in uh, the former Soviet Union. And so we have um, we do have a, a massive global footprint, both militarily uh, and diplomatically. And on the one hand, again, that has been very much to our benefit. Uh, but it has also been, I think, at the expense of a sufficient focus on things like inequality at home. Uh, so I do think that some realignment of priorities towards domestic policies, domestic infrastructure, uh, whether we're talking about allocating um, human resources or uh, financial resources is something that uh, Democrats certainly are well aware of and I think very prepared to do. So I, I think we, we will see a commitment to more selective engagement abroad, understanding that our current engagements can't just be cut off uh, overnight. And so the, the frustration that many have expressed and no doubt will continue to feel about our current uh, involvement and entanglements is something that, that we are going to have to live with for a while. But I think a, a principled strategic reassessment of, of how we allocate our resources, uh, and in particular, again, I think um, really needed attention to domestic issues of, of inequality, of uh, particularly, you know, post-pandemic poverty, uh, the educational uh, deficits that we're going to see and are already seeing because kids haven't been in school. All of these things, I think, will, will rightfully be the priority of, of any new administration. It's interesting what Professor Keitner had to say about a Trump foreign policy versus a Biden foreign policy, namely that if Trump is reelected, foreign actors might actually be unwilling to make plans contingent on U.S. involvement. She also highlights this tension between our foreign commitments and our own domestic issues that perhaps have always subsisted, but that have certainly been magnified over the last four years. The election is momentous, and our votes are not just consequential, but critical. Turning away for a moment from international affairs, let's take a closer look at the U.S. voter landscape. 
Tim, you spoke with Professor Ross about key trends and developments he's been following that could have a significant impact on the election. What did you take away from your conversation? Hey, Veronica. So the first thing I took away from speaking with Professor Ross is that he made a really bold prediction about swing states. Swing states are going to be really important. They're probably going to determine the election outcome. And I asked Professor Ross, which states should we keep an eye on? Yeah, there are two states that I'm focusing in on. One's a familiar state that you just mentioned with respect to the 2000 election, and that's Florida. The reason I'm looking to Florida is because that's pretty much the pathway to victory that's necessary for Trump to win the election is to win Florida. Another reason I'm looking to Florida is because they provide for the processing of ballots well before the election. So we will actually get results in Florida, whereas we might not get results, and we probably will not get results from many of the Great Lakes states like Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, which do not allow for the pre-processing of ballots until the day before the election or on election day, where Florida provides for the processing of election uh, ballots um, 30 days and more before the election. But Florida is a place I'm going to be looking at and seeing what the results are there, because we could be relatively confident that the results we see on election night are the results that we're going to see into the future beyond election night. Then there's the state, an unusual state is the state of Texas. Now, Texas really? is a, a surprising state. It's a state that you know Democrats place a lot of hope on in previous elections and usually get blown out by a pretty significant margin. But what we're seeing in Texas is rather phenomenal. If you look at the early voting in Texas, the there have been almost 6 million ballots cast in Texas already, which is about 55 to 60% of the number of votes cast in the state of Texas in 2016 entirely. There's evidence on the ground that um, um, that the turnout um, is being driven by urban places, which tend to vote Democratic. And you have a system in Texas that, again, uh, provides for earlier processing of ballots and limited absentee balloting in that state. So a lot of the early voting in that state is by um, in-person voting. And about four out of the 5.7 million votes have been cast in person. And so we're going to get a sense of what the results are that night. We may have a sense in terms of, of where the election will ultimately land if Biden somehow pulls off which what, what would be a pretty um, big upset given the given the um, Democrats haven't won that state in quite a few election cycles. So those are two states I'm looking at pretty closely on election night. Professor Ross, I really want to ask you about Texas because I think we've heard for for many years, perhaps even decades, that there are demographic shifts happening in states like Texas, where you have a large immigrant population, uh, an influx of uh, Hispanic voters. And the, the popular thinking is that those voters would tilt a state like Texas more gradually, more and more democratic in each election cycle. And I know that people have been talking about this for years, but it seems that in cycle after cycle, that demographic shift never quite seems to come to fruition in a way that would, would change the outcome of the vote in Texas. So why, why do you think this year could finally be the year? I think because of the work of Beto um, in terms of registering voters um, based on um, his um, success in the or close 
close loss in his past um, senatorial race. Um, it's suggestive that um, there might be opportunities there um, that didn't exist before. And so what I look for in Texas is different than what happened before is the turnout numbers. Um, it didn't translate the sort of demographic shifts haven't translated into different election outcomes because turnout has remained pretty low, um, relatively low in Texas. But now we're seeing a huge bump in turnout. And that bump in turnout, if it persists through Election Day, um, is probably responsive to the demographic shifts we're seeing in the state of Texas. That turnout growth is likely arising from previous non-voters or individuals that have moved into the state, which tend to have moved into the urban parts of the state, which tend to be more Democratic-oriented. And the combination of these two groups, which um, comprise of Latinx voters who um, have typically turned out in lower numbers in prior election, and the influx of new um, Texans um, who hadn't turned out at all because they didn't live in the state, um, to the extent that that is pushing the turnout numbers higher, which evidence suggests it might be, then we might see, again, the surprise upset that um, seemed entirely um, unlikely um, even three, two, three, four months ago. So, Veronica, I agree with Professor Ross about Florida being a swing state, but I'm still kind of shocked that he brought up Texas. And this might sound crazy. It is a little crazy. But today, as we're recording on October 27th, Joe Biden went to Georgia today to campaign. Georgia would be another complete shocker if that state swings to the Democrats. The last time the last time a Democrat won in Georgia was Bill Clinton in 1992. So, Tim, it seems like, in addition to the usual factors at play, this election in particular is correlated with some unusual shifts in voting conventions. Aside from this election being, well, this election, COVID-19 has evidently had a major impact on voting mechanics this year. What did Professor Ross think about how voting laws have changed and are undergoing changes we speak, at least in part due to COVID-19? So this year's election is definitely affected by COVID. Many states have made it easier to vote by mail so that the voters won't risk spreading the coronavirus if they were to go to the polls and vote in person. However, in Texas, the Republican governor, Greg Abbott, is actively trying to make it harder to vote. He has been removing ballot drop boxes in some of the most populated counties in Texas. Here's what Professor Ross had to say. Yeah, it's, it's important to note that the Texas decision to reduce the number of drop boxes was not a random decision. It was in response, again, to the surge in registration number. And the expectation that that surge could be to the detriment of the Republican Party that controls the apparatus of elections in the state of Texas. So it was a clear response to what they saw potentially happening on the ground. Now, could this matter? Um, it could in a very close election. Now, I think that with respect to these voter suppression efforts in terms of limiting the number of drop boxes, limiting the number of polling places, um, making it harder to vote via absentee methods during a pandemic, they could, in an election that is within one to two points, shift the election in favor of one party over the other. And if that were to occur, the beneficiary would like beneficiary would likely be the Republican Party, although it's not as easy to say that as it has been in past elections, because Democrats and Republicans both are relying on vote by mail in this election to avoid the harms and, and, and health consequences of the pandemic. And to the extent that 
older voters are voters that have traditionally voted um, Republican in a state like Texas, then perhaps your um, the Republican Party apparatus is hurting its own constituency by limiting the number of polling places or limiting the number of drop box opportunities and making absentee voting harder. But in other states, what we're going to see in terms of voter suppression efforts, in addition to limits or our efforts to limit absentee balloting are efforts at the polls to try to deter voters. And we see some of these efforts in terms of these election observers that have been hired or affiliated with the Trump campaign that um, are going to polls predominantly in minority communities. And they're um, not um, playing their supposed role of protecting the integrity of the election, um, many suggest, and what I've seen is that they're engaging in tactics of intimidation to try to deter voters. I don't think and I hope that intimidation doesn't turn into any forms of violence. But the, again, the design is to, again, deter voters. And then a third tactic that we might be seeing is efforts to um, to um, to check the qualifications of voters. Right. So mm. you, you as a person at the poll can always um, question or challenge the qualification of the voter. There's state laws in many states that provide for challenges of, of the qualification of particular voters. And although many of these qualifications will not hold up, they do, in a, they do have the effect of slowing down the voting process. And to the extent that you're slowing down the voting process with these long lines that you're seeing, there's going to be some attrition. And that attrition could have an effect. And to the extent that you're focusing on minority voting, um, minority polls to engage in these challenges, then it's to perhaps the Republican advantage. But I, I see this as potentially marginal um, um, in terms of the voter suppression efforts. I think with respect to absentee ballots, you have to assume a certain asymmetry in terms of effects that it will only impact the, the absentee ballots of Democrats and not Republicans. And I see less asymmetry with respect to absentee ballot voter suppression than I do with respect to in-person voter suppression. So I see the effects as, as having um, on these close elections that are within one to two points. Having said that, however, there could be a lot of state elections and states at the presidential mm -hmm. level that are within one to two points. If you look at polls coming out of North Carolina, Georgia, Arizona, you know, even Texas, uh, Florida, right? These could be very tight. Ohio, these could be very tight elections. And so, you know, maybe these voter suppression efforts can have the effect of shifting the election result from one party to the other. And Professor Keitner had this to say about the flaws in our voting system and the seemingly symbiotic relationship between election intervention by foreign state actors and public messaging by the U.S. government itself. Look, uh, it's too bad that we don't have a system of uh, universal hand-marked paper ballots in this country. And uh, in my view, actually, also too bad that we don't have a system of automatic voter registration, if not compulsory voting. So uh, we're already way behind, in my view, in establishing good practices for actually uh, determining the will of the electorate. I think that the additional layer that we have, or the two additional layers that we have to, to confront right now are explicit attempts by foreign state actors to create uncertainty about the legitimacy of our election results. And we saw that in 2016, and we're absolutely seeing it now. They are not changing votes. I know there are some people who feel like it's impossible to prove a negative, and so they're very uncomfortable with that assertion. Uh, but I am comfortable with the public reporting that they are not changing votes. However, uh, 
voter suppression is as good as changing votes, in my view, because, of course, the result depends on how many votes are cast, uh, not just uh, the, the, you know, it, it depends in the end on the percentage of votes for one party or another among those cast. But that, in turn, of course, is, is fundamentally determined by the number of votes cast. So things like providing false information about where voting happens and what time it happens and what the requirements are for voting uh, are things that that foreign state actors have been uh, heavily involved in doing. And when I say foreign state actors, I mean that public attributions that have been made are certainly to Russia and most recently also to Iran. If we had a clear message from the top that foreign interference is unacceptable, that our election results are reliable, that uh, state and local election officials are getting the financial, technical, and other support that they need, we would be in a much better place. Um, and we're obviously getting from the very top, the very opposite message. Professor Keitner was just talking about foreign interference from Russia or Iran. One additional factor that could impact the election outcome would be an intervention by the Supreme Court. I'm not trying to compare Russia and the Supreme Court. I just didn't have a better segue for this section. So now the Supreme Court is not typically involved in deciding elections, but I wanted to ask Professor Ross if the court might get involved this time. I don't want to be alarmist about this. I think it's pretty <laughs> unlikely, but we shouldn't be complacent about it. Um, and so I guess in terms of the two pathways, the main pathways to a Supreme Court decision on the election. Well, one pathway has to do with the administration of the election and how ballots are being counted. So you can imagine um, the state of Pennsylvania, which is the state I'm looking closely at with respect to one of these disputes. They have a rule in place based on a court ruling that um, that ballots that are postmarked on election day um, can and will be counted. The problem, however, is that the post office does not consistently postmark all their mail. Hmm. And so you can have some ballots that were sent on election day and that should be counted. Um, and what the, what the rule is in, in, in Pennsylvania is that so long as there's a preponderance, it's more likely than not that that ballot was sent on election day, right? And so there's a lot of disputes that could arise from these unpostmarked ballots. And so except mm -hmm. that we have a post-election, these disputes can go to court in terms of how do you count these ballots. These are like the hanging chads of the 2000 election, right? And so these is disputed at the state or federal district court level. A decision is made maybe on equal protection grounds about how you count these ballots, for example. And then this case goes up to the Supreme Court and they ultimately have to resolve this election Election administration issue with respect to what to do about these ballots. Now, does this matter in terms of the election? Well, it depends on if these ballots are outcome determinative to the extent that if you count them, they shift the election from one side to the other. And so there would have to be a either exceedingly close election or a lot of ballots that are in the state. And so that's one way in which the, uh, and so it, that's one way in which a, a case could get to the Supreme Court, some election administration issue that either these postmarking um, rules or a signature verification requirements, or if you're doing in-person voting, um, you often have pretty much every election, there's people in line at the time the polls close, and then the state has to make a decision as to whether to keep the poll open or to close it. And this often goes through emergency 
emergency um, 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 issuance of a, a suit to court to keep the poll, polls open. And that could lead to a dispute afterwards in terms of whether these votes should have counted or not. Now, in the past, typically the state decision as to whether to keep the polls open usually stands because those people, if they keep it open, have voted and there's no way to discriminate or to take out their particular ballots after the fact. So um, um, so the question sometimes arises if they close when people are in line, what to do in that situation. Often that's a fait accompli as well because the election is over by then. Mm-hmm. People are get back in line. So mm-hmm. I see it more more likely to happen on the absentee ballot um, op- election administration issue, an issue that could go to the Supreme Court. The second way is perhaps the more um, uh, unusual pathway that could raise a constitutional crisis. And this could arise in a state like Pennsylvania or Michigan or Wisconsin, in which the legislatures are Republican control and mm-hmm. the governors are Democrats. And you have a situation where in on election day or at certain point, um, you know, Trump is winning, right? And Trump goes so far based on the fact that he's winning to declare himself victor. Mm -hmm. And he gets the backing of maybe Republican members of the party, including congresspersons, state officials, and perhaps even a media outlet like Fox News, right? Mm -hmm. And then um, as the ballots are counted, um, this Trump win ends up being a mirage, what they label now a red mirage, and ultimately mm-hmm. they find that Biden wins. But the state legislature in those states decides on the basis of the earlier determination of victory that they want to slate the electors to Congress that Trump selected. Right. So the electors that would go to Congress that would be counted for electoral college purposes are um, are are Republican electors, whereas the governor who's looking at the full ballot count determines that, no, based on the full ballot count, Biden's electors, the Democratic electors should go to Congress. And so a state is now in a position of sending two different slate of electors to Congress. And if these electors are ultimately pivotal electors, that could create all kinds of problems because there's no clear way to resolve this under our constitutional framework or no laws that provide a means for resolving this particular dispute. So you can imagine, right, then it would go to Congress and Congress have to decide. But then you have the House controlled by the Democrats and the Senate controlled by the Republicans and they gridlock. They just they can't Mm -hmm, decide mm -hmm. the dispute. And then who's the neutral independent arbiter that can make this decision? Maybe it's the court, although there's a lot of distrust about the Supreme Court, but maybe mm-hmm. the Supreme Court steps in to try to resolve it in a particular in, in some way or the other. This would be a crisis situation. I, I hope it doesn't come into being. I still think it's very, very unlikely, but it's one of the things that we shouldn't be too alarmist about, but not complacent about because we have to anticipate this as a possibility. It was actually something discussed in 2000. And um, um, George Bush, when he was running, um, um, they had a plan for these electors from Florida to be slated for Bush, no matter what, um, irrespective of, of the of the recount. And ultimately, the Supreme Court ultimately stepped in and stopped the recount, and we didn't get to that point. So these things are in, are potentially in place. The Pennsylvania uh, Republican elected official, um, I forget his position, um, even suggested as much that you know they have a plan in place potentially that would involve mm-hmm. the voting of Republican electors um, if it comes at, on election day. You know. Um, um, 
um, Trump is in the lead, even though they haven't counted all the ballots. So these are scenarios that we need to consider. And these are scenarios in which the Supreme Court could become involved in this election. Apparent distrust in the courts, potentially partisan changes to voting laws, and the Supreme Court stepping in. All of these are either happening or a very real possibility. So we asked Professors Keitner and Ross, is the U.S. still a functioning democracy? To hear what Professors Keitner and Ross had to say about whether the U.S. is still a functioning democracy, the role of nationalism has played in civic engagement, how the relationship between nationalism and race has influenced politics, and their predictions for the November 3rd election and beyond, please listen to part two of this episode. Thank you for listening. Travaux is brought to you by Kayleen Kosla, Tim Patterson, and Veronica Bognat at the Berkeley Journal of International Law. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please write to us at berkeley.travaux at gmail.com. Again, that's berkeley.travaux at gmail.com. While we are committed to bringing you international and comparative law news and insight, our podcast is intended for academic and entertainment purposes only. The information presented is not legal advice and may not be current. 